We've just sung the message this morning. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, and when we do that, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Well, I invite you to take your notes from the worship folder and uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2 as we continue working our way through the letter that John wrote to uh, some of the early believers. You know, there was a TV commercial uh, some time ago for Cadillac cars. And there was a guy who pulled up to a stoplight in a regular car. And next to him was a shiny new Cadillac with a beautiful woman driving the car. And this man stared at the Cadillac and stared at this gal who was exuding all kinds of self-confidence and pride. And the narrator comes on and says, for some, it's a goal. For others, it's a way of life. That kind of expresses the attitude of the world, the philosophies of the world, all in that one uh, commercial. You have this on your outline, uh, the three basic views of, of the world that the world looks at. <clears throat> one of them is hedonism. Uh, the desire for pleasure, indulging ourselves. Uh, let me put it this way. There's nothing wrong with pleasure. But hedonism makes that pleasure the ultimate. Hedonism is bad. Pleasure isn't bad, but pleasureism, hedonism is bad. Materialism says that possessions are all important. It's all about increasing our possessions. Uh, and narcissism is pride. Again, more possessions, status. Narcissism says, I'm all important. Thankfully, there's nothing wrong with being human. Uh, but humanism is where I say that humans and what humans, who humans are, what they do, what they think, is the ultimate. That's humanism. That's bad. So with that in mind, let's read our passage, 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 15. <clears throat> Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. We're going to stop there. This is God's word for us. So John gave a word of encouragement in verses 12 through 14 that we looked at last week, and he said, Excuse me, no matter where we are in our journey of faith in Christ, we have to remember that we have to bask in God's forgiveness. We keep seeking after God, and we do that primarily by growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We do that through the Word. Somebody wrote me a, a text this last week who was in the service last week and said they grew up in the Catholic Church and they, they heard about the importance of confessing sin. They heard how they were sinners, but never about, in their experience, about the grace of God. 
And they said, thank you so much for just preaching the word about God's grace and the truth that we can grow in that grace through the word. So having provided a word of encouragement in verses 12 to 14, John now gives us a word of warning of what he says six times in the verses we just read, he identifies as the world. Uh, So first of all, we need to define worldliness. Uh, One of my seminary professors, a man named David Wells, put it like this, and this is really important for us to get, this first definition. So follow along, it's on your outline. What is worldliness? It is that system of values in any given age which has as its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and his truth from the world, and which makes sin look normal, and righteousness seem strange. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong, and for that reason makes what is wrong seem normal. That's the world we live in. So how do we live in a world like that without being controlled by the kind of worldly attitudes we just looked at are out there? What John is referring to is a worldview perspective that's that's inspired by, back in verse 14, the evil one. These are, are things that have no lasting or eternal value. What John is telling us, and this is on your outline, is that we're not to love and we're, we're not to make idols out of the thoughts and values and behaviors that go against God's will as, as it is revealed to us in his word. That's how we know the will of God. It's in the word of God. So this is a call, if you will, to be intentional about loving God. And at the same time, to be intentional about not loving the world. So John highlights three things that happen when you think like the world thinks. And my prayer is that God will use these verses that we're looking at this morning to encourage us and to challenge us in our lives. So John begins with a command, the beginning of verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. So from this command, every other point falls under this. So this is where he begins. So the first thing that we see is that love, this is number one on your outline, that love for the world pushes out love for the Father. The world just can't give us what we need. What do we need? We need God's love. And we know that, for God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only Son, That's what we need. We need a a father-child relationship with God. That's what he came to establish. That's why he sent Jesus to be the mediator between us and God. So John gives us an incentive in verse 15 when he says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in, in them. So the incentive is that if you want to be able to love the Father, then you can't love the world. Sue, not someone who is a part of this church, went off to college last fall. She came from a strong Christian home, was active in her church growing up. As soon as she got to college, 
she joined a sorority and started dating someone who wasn't a Christian right away. Got super busy with parties and other activities and trying to keep up with her studies. And uh, for the fall term, she was completely swept away by college life. She came home for Christmas to see her parents and be with her family. Uh, Her father and her pastor had recommended a church that was near the campus where she was going to school. And she went one Sunday, but she never went back. She kept up with everything she had going on at school, but just didn't have time for the Lord. So after her first year, her parents said she had been taken hostage by the world. Jim, also someone not a part of this church, is a Christian businessman, and he did well at the company he worked for and decided to branch off on his own. And it seemed like the timing was right, and business began to take off. He started to make more money than he'd ever made before, and he got caught up in it, real caught up. And he was pretty much a workaholic anyway, and so a 12 to 14-hour day just wasn't a big thing for him. And he had to drop out of the Sunday school class he was teaching because he said he didn't have time to prepare. He wanted to be conscientious, he said. Then he found he could only make it to Sunday morning worship for work um, because work got in the way, not every Sunday. And so he didn't even end up being faithful in that, started traveling a lot on Sundays. It took a toll on him. Uh, He loved spending time with his wife and kids, but it seemed like now it was hard. It was a bother to spend time with them. And like with his family, spiritual things got put to the side. And eventually, just about everything related to church got pushed out. Jim had also been taken hostage by the world. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Love for the world pushes out love for God. And the opposite is true as well. We sang about it. Uh, when, we loved, when we love God and seek him, it will push the world out. It will make the world grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. So being as honest as you can with yourself, can you identify what is competing in this world for your love and attention to try to draw you away from the love of the Father? it would be worth spending some time thinking about that. Are you loving the Father? Are you pursuing him and a a deeper and more intimate relationship with him? When you do that, it will push out the world. The second thing we see in here that we're warned about is that the number two on your outline, that the world can't give you what it promises. In verse 16, Verse 16 says, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. We talk about the Christian life sometimes being a battle. It is a battle. We're at war against the evil one. We're at war against Satan. 
And we have to take on, Paul talks about taking on the armor of God. And this verse is important because it tells us the weapons that the world uses to get us to, to join its side, to seduce us. And these are the same three weapons that Satan used in the beginning in Genesis 3. There are a couple of great biblical examples of this. One of them is in Genesis 3. You've got it on your outline. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food. What is that? That's the lust of the flesh. And it was delightful to look at. That's the lust of the eyes. And then it was, it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. That's the pride of life. And the world promised all these things to Adam and Eve. But all it did was led them into sin. And these are the exact same temptations that Satan used to bring down Jesus or to try to bring him down. Satan said to Jesus in Luke chapter 4, tell this stone to become bread. It's the lust of the flesh. Then Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, tempting Jesus with the lust of the eyes. And finally, from the top of the temple, Satan challenged Jesus, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. That was tempting Jesus with the pride of life. And Satan is misquoting scripture there too, but it didn't work. None of these tactics worked against Jesus. And it will be helpful for us, <clears throat> excuse me, to look briefly at each of these weapons because even though they're old, uh, they can still be effective against us if we don't recognize them. And so we have to. And so the desires of the flesh, and this is on your outline, appeal to our appetites. Desires or cravings or lusts or passions. Sexual appetite leads to sexual immorality. <clears throat> sex, is, sex can be a very good thing. Food can be a very good thing. But a physical appetite can lead to gluttony. And we give in to the flesh because we're sinful. And we're attracted to sin like a fish is attracted to a baited hook. And Satan hooks us in. So how do we combat this? Well, I think the number one thing has to be prayer. We pray for ourselves. We pray for those around us. How did, how did Jesus combat Satan in Luke? He quoted scripture. And so I can tell you personally from my own experience, my own life, the one thing that has helped me more than any other discipline in my Christian life is to memorize scripture. And so there's, I can't say it enough. Memorize God's word. Hide it in your heart. Pray his word for you. We talk about doing the will of God. The, the best way to know the will of God is to know scripture. And so to pray scripture for yourself, to pray scripture for other people is the way to combat against that. And then the desire of the eyes appeals to our affections, to what we think we love. God gave us our eyes, and our eyes are a gift from him, but they're also the way that sin enters into our lives. That's why Jesus says this in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust, after, to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. <clears throat> if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. 
For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than, the whole, than your whole body be thrown into hell. So it's, it starts in the heart. That's what Jesus is saying there. Uh, trust me, a blind person can still be tempted with these things. But we need to understand that we need to guard what we are watching. We, we have to guard that. Remember, it was David, his eyes, that got him into trouble in 2 Samuel 11. And they led him to lie and to commit adultery and then finally to commit murder. And then there's pride in possessions. And that appeals to our ambitions. Pride of life, it says in the New International Version. Pride in our achievements and possessions, it says in the New Living Translation. So this is the person who makes everything all about them and not about God. And they turn their career and their achievements and their social standing into idols. They idolize stuff. And the problem isn't the stuff. The problem is that our hearts are drawn toward that stuff. One commentator said it like this. Pride of life is all the false views of pleasure. The false views of possessions the false views of superiority. That's the pride of life. And that there are false views means that, that there's a good view of pleasure. There's a good view of possessions. A good view of, of superiority, being humble, is the way to, to, be a, the, to be a servant of all, Jesus said, is the way to get ahead in life, the way to, 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 to be obedient to God. So this commentator goes on, human egotism is like the mirror-lined walls in the old barber shops I went to when I was a kid. Sitting in the barber's chair, you see yourself reflected a seeming infinite number of times. There's a pride, that's the pride of life, a million-fold reflection of self. I, 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 everywhere. In his book, The Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer draws our attention to the blinding deception in the pride of possessions. And he says this, it's on your outline, follow along. There is, a, there is within the human heart a tough, fibrous root of fallen life whose nature is to possess, always to possess. It covets things with a deep and fierce passion. The pronouns my and mine look innocent enough in print but their constant and universal use is significant. They express the real nature of the old Adamic man better than a thousand volumes of theology could do. They are verbal symptoms of our deep disease. The roots of our hearts have grown down into things, and we dare not pull up one small root lest we die. Things have become necessary to us, a development never originally intended. God's gifts now take the place of God. And the whole course of human nature is upset by the monstrous substitution. It's like what Paul says in Romans 1. We have become worshipers of God's creation and we've forgotten God who did the creation, who created it all. And we can't forget God. We keep our eyes on Jesus. And how does a Christian get so deceived? It doesn't happen all at once. It can even be attractive at first. 
We're so saturated with our culture that we start letting our guard down. You know, in France, having lived there for 10 years, frog legs are a delicacy. Uh, Out of curiosity, how many of you have eaten frog legs? I'm surprised. That's amazing. Um, I actually had frog legs before I got to France. Um, One time with my cousin David on a farm near our home in Kansas where we went to um, his farm. He had a pond on his farm and uh, they had huge bullfrogs. So we would go out at night and shine a light right in the eyes of the bullfrog and then we could sneak up on it and grab it and put it in a, a bag and then we'd go home and our idea was we were going to eat these frogs. Um, and uh, so we put it in my aunt. I'm not sure what's going on with the sound here, but uh, my aunt Wanda said, uh, here, I, she said, if we, if we start out boil and put them in boiling water, they're going to jump right out. So we're not going to put them in boiling water. Uh, so we put them in cold water. Actually, they still jumped out. So we had to put some kind of a screen on top of it. Um, but when we did that, after we did that, we turned up the heat. And little by little, it got warm. And uh, they, they, they were, now that they knew they couldn't get out, they didn't seem to be trying. Then it kind of comes to a jacuzzi level. They get comfortable, but um, getting warm. And then maybe they become a little bit alarmed when it gets warmer than that. But finally, the water's boiling, and it's too late. And so we, we ate them. It tasted like chicken. Um, but we Christians are kind of like that. We find the world pleasant at first. And then it gets a little warmer, and, and it's even comfortable for us. But think of Sue, that gal at college, or Jim at work. And pretty soon we're, we're, we're held hostage to the world taken hostage by the world. And one day, maybe, maybe a Christian wakes up and realizes the danger of how the world has taken over their thinking and they say, this is going to seriously compromise my faith and I don't have the strength to get out. So how do we get out? That's a situation we don't want to find ourselves in. But that's where we have fellowship together. That's how, why corporate worship like we're doing this morning is so important. That's why being in a smaller group where people can know you and pray for you and you can know them and pray for them, that's why that is so important. Jesus gives us, I think, a stunning counter example. Uh, you've got it on, on your outline concerning pride in, in his birth and rank. He was a carpenter's son. Concerning pride and possessions, Jesus said, the son of man has no place to lay his head. Concerning pride in family, uh, it was said of Jesus, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Concerning pride of who he hung out with, it was said again of Jesus, he is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And concerning pride in intellect or education, he said, as the father taught me, I say these things. And concerning pride and self-will, Jesus said, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Are your prayers like that? Are your prayers are prayers that are saying, Lord, uh, here's what I want. 
You know my heart, but more than anything, I want your will, not my will to be done. That should be the attitude of our heart every time we open our mouth to pray, every time we pray in our heart to pray. That should be the attitude of our heart. And so the example of Jesus is instructive for us. James 4 says, but God gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 6, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt us at the proper time. There are a lot of ways that we can humble ourselves, but one of those ways is to keep growing in gratitude for whatever God's will is, for whatever's happening in our lives. And that's what the, the exhortation that Paul gives us in 1 Thessalonians 5. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you who are in Christ Jesus. And so, we, are, are you, do you have a life of gratitude? Are you, are you thanking God for what he brings in your life, whether you like it or not? We don't have to thank God for that thing, but we thank God that he will use that thing to make us like his son Jesus. And then third, what the world gives you will not last. Verse 17, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So why side with the world when it's so temporary? This evil and deceptive system that we live in is a worthless fake, but it will suck you in. And what does last? The answer is the one who's doing the will of God. That's the one who abides forever. Jesus says many things about the will of God, that, and especially in John's gospel, but I'll mention a few of them. You've got the references on your outline, but in John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. My food, like we said last week from Jeremiah the prophet, eat the word. Eat the word. Live on the word. No man can live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, Jesus said to Satan in Matthew 4 when he was in battle with him. In John 5, I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me, said Jesus. And in John 6, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And again, what we just read in John, 1 John 2, 17, whoever does the will of God lives forever. So I've got a question for you. Are you doing the will of God? Are you doing the will of God? You know it from the word. So that implies that you're in the word so that you can know that you're doing the will of God. Jesus' work lasted because he did the will of the Father. And our work will last in the same way. Our hearts also have to be attached, not to the things of the world, but to the will of the Father. What are the differences between the things of the world and the things of the Father? The contrast couldn't be greater. In worldly thinking, the focus is on me. The, the focus is on making as much money as I can. On making a name for myself. If I'm concerned about accomplishing the will of the Father, my focus will be on making God great, not me. I'll want to give as much of myself as I can to others and, and to God for service to Him. 
I want to give as much of my money as I can to God and to service for him. I want to focus on making his name great instead of on focusing on making my name great, a name for myself. The world says stay married as long as your spouse meets your needs. To do the will of God, you serve your spouse. You love your spouse. Husbands, like, like Christ loved the church. You love them for life. It's a covenant that you've made between you and God. What are you focused on? You know, one of the saddest stories in the Bible is about a man named Demas. He's not very well known. His life is not, uh, his life I think is very important, but tragic lesson for us who love the Father. We first hear of Demas in Colossians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul mentions him as uh, one of the faithful men who are serving with Paul, who worked hard for the gospel. Wow, what a compliment from Paul. And then the next time we hear of Demas is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, toward the end of Paul's final letter, as Paul himself is awaiting execution for his faith in Christ. And he writes this in 2 Timothy 4.10. Demas has deserted me because he loved this present world. Another translation says he loved the things of this life. Wow, how sad is that? You can almost feel Paul's heart breaking as he writes it. And this is on your outline. The lesson of Demas is this. Don't let love for the things of this life overshadow your love for the Father. Don't let your love for the things of this life cause you to chase after things that will pass away. You don't want to come to the end of your life and have all these regrets. I think it was C.T. Studd. I might be missing who this is, but uh, who was a missionary himself to Africa, and he said there's, maybe, I don't know, D.L. Moody. Anyway, he said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So we do it for him. So love for the world pushes out love for God. We can't give you what it promises. It won't last. So how do we overcome the things of the world? Well, this is what the writer to the Hebrews called stripping off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. John's warning to believers is clear. Don't get tangled up in the things of the world. I heard about a commanding officer one time who was talking to his Marines on a ship before they were getting ready for a 48-hour leave uh, at, a, at a, a city that was really a, a ton of stuff to do, a ton of fun things to do, but he gave them a warning and he said, it's really easy to get captivated by what you're focusing on and forget what time you need to be back at the ship. So don't forget it. Be back on the ship. Sure enough, 48 hours later, there's some Marines realizing they've, are they're going to miss the boat, and they run, and they run just in time to see the ship pulling away from the dock. 
It's like they'd ignore their CO's warnings. And the dangers were real, and the consequences put a permanent mark on their military records. Can't imagine the conversation that CO had the next time he saw those men, but I guarantee you I wouldn't want to repeat it word for word here. We need to listen. This is the point. We need to listen to what John's saying. We need to be sensible and practical when it comes to putting these warnings into action. Those Marines could have gone back to their bunk when the, when the CO said that and just uh, hid under the covers for 48 hours. They wouldn't have missed the boat. But that would have been, uh, you know, that would have been an extreme way to, to do it. They didn't unnecessary, need to go to unnes- that kind of an unnecessary extreme. Some Christians respond to verse 16 by basically trying to cut themselves off from the world completely. And maybe these are good things that you've done. They are good things. They can be. But, but maybe some people have said, well, you know, I'm not even going to own a television. I'm not ever going to go to a movie. I'm not going to have a smartphone. I'm not even going to watch sports. I'm just going to keep my life plain and drab. And maybe those things can help or maybe not. Jesus said it like this, though, in John 17. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. And maybe if that helps, then that's great. But God's will for believers is for us to be living in the world, but not as a part of the world. We're to be salt and light, but to be salt and light, we, have to, we can't disengage. We can't live in a Christian ghetto. The other extreme for Christians is unfortunately sometimes to shame the sinners around you or to insult the people who disagree with you. Don't do that. We don't do that. I like what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He said this. He said in 1 Corinthians 5, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Remember, he's talking about people in the church who were calling themselves Christians but were who, who were living sexually immoral lives. But Paul goes on, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, we would have to leave this world. So Jesus associated with sinners. If we're going to be salt and light, our presence should be appealing. Our presence should be full of grace, gracious. So is your life appealing in that way to the people, the unbelievers that you live around? It should be. That should be our goal. We are the light of the world. We have been showered by the grace of God. We should be the most gracious people in the world. We stand on our convictions, but we respond with kindness. I like the way, Paul, the way Peter said it, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness and reverence. Paul said it like this in Romans 12, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. But let God remold your mind from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good and meets all his demands and moves towards the goal of true maturity. So if right now you would describe your love for God as weak, there are two possibilities. One is you're not born again. 
It's possible to be a Christian or to think you're a Christian by culture or by heritage. You get so immersed in the Christian culture that you know how to talk, you learn how to talk the talk. You learn how to participate in certain activities, maybe because you've been blessed with Christian parents or Christian friends. But you've never witnessed a deep change in your nature by the power of the Holy Spirit that brings about the new birth and a, a, a fresh love for God. So being a Christian doesn't mean there won't be bumps along the way. Henry Martin, one of a brilliant missionary and Bible translator, said it like this when he was looking back on his conversion, on his Christian life, just after having been a Christian for a few years, he wrote this, the work is real. I can no more doubt my salvation than I can doubt my own existence. The whole current of my desires is altered. I'm walking in quite a new and different way. Though I am incessantly stumbling in that way. Doesn't mean we're perfect. We're, we're human. We're going to fail. Paul said to Timothy, though, the same warning in the last days there will be very difficult times, for people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God. They will love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. So it's definitely possible to be regular at church and read your Bible but have never had the new birth. <clears throat> never have this heartfelt love for God. So what do you do? Ask Christ in your life. Ask him to take away your heart of stone and prayerfully pour over the word of God, asking him like, he, like David prays in Psalm 119, verse 18, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things from your word. And then we, we put the word into practice. The other possibility, also on your outline, is maybe your love has grown cold and weak. Maybe you know exactly what it means to have a heart for God. You know in your head there's nothing better in all the world than living for the glory of God. You've been there before, but you know you're not there now. And the light that you have for the Lord is just barely flickering. So what do you do? It's the same Holy Spirit, the same Word of God, that ignites that fire in your life, that will rekindle that fire in your life. And so you do the same thing. Again, you immerse yourself prayerfully in the word of God. Ask God to speak to you. Ask him to help you live that out in your life. Seek to be obedient to God. In all you do, cry out to God for a new passion. Do not be content with living a lukewarm, half-hearted Christian life. My prayer for all of us is what Paul prayed in Philippians 3. It's on your outline. In fact, let's read it out loud together right now. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. Christ. 